First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Peter writes, Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you? If you become followers of what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Peter has broadly dealt with the themes of submission to human institutions in chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Social circumstances and family living in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We are subjects in a human world. We are servants in a social circumstance. But clearly we are called to be saints in God's kingdom. We have social obligations and we have family obligations, and we have fellowship obligations. Now, many people hate that word, obligation. I think the reason why they hate it is it sounds so obligatory. Obligation conjures mental images of Necessity, duty, responsibility, charge, care. But remember that effective submission contains a most important element. And the most important element of submission is free will. You might think, Lord, make me submit to the government. Lord, make me submit to my husband. Lord, help me to promote and encourage and practice mutual submission in the home. Lord, help me submit in social circumstances in the church. And the reality is, clearly what I've already encouraged you is that kind of submission apart from the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is going to be impossible. But the reality is you also have to make the choice. You have to purpose in your heart to obey. Peter gives instructions on how we are to live in peace in order for submission to work, in order for suffering to be handled in a God-honoring fashion, we have to be able to not only open our Bibles and read our Bibles and listen to what is being said, but we have to be willing to obey. I recently received a call on my radio program from a frustrated woman who claimed she was being persecuted by her ex-husband. 
And she mentioned the kind of trauma and degradation and humiliation that she experienced as, as the father lays down to the children, how he goes to great lengths to malign her and persecute her and humiliate her in front of, of the children. And she wanted the persecution to stop. And clearly, we don't want persecution. We don't welcome persecution. But we also understand that Jesus told us to anticipate and expect persecution. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, said, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you want the persecution to go away? The persecution will go away if you refuse to live godly in Christ Jesus. By the way, the persecution will go away if you stop acting and talking and thinking and behaving like a believer. Do you want the persecution to go away? Then live and act and talk and respond and appear just like everybody else. And guess what? The persecution will go away. But that's not an option for the believer. Believers, by the very nature of the word, means that they are current followers of Jesus Christ. We don't go along to get along. We don't abandon Jesus or our deeply held convictions concerning Christ. We're to find clearly a way to live in peace. And that's part of the point that Peter is making. I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Do you enjoy the idea of strangers watching you fight with your husband or your wife or your family? In other words, do you orchestrate your fights at home when the neighbors are over or when your family and friends have gathered? Is that the best time to fight? The unbeliever in the world looks at Christians they look at the fighting, they look at the separations, they look at the schisms, they look at the arguments, they look at the bickering, they look at the biting among the Christians as one more reason to pay Christianity no mind. Christians need to grow up and mature. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews said, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. It's possible to grow old but not grow up. Mature Christians are looking for unity in verse 8, to establish mutual interest in verse 8, friendship and affection in verse 8, compassion in verse 8, humility in verse 8, forgiveness in verse 9, disciplined speech in verse 10, purity and peace in verse 11. And so remember the whole context that is being given as Peter has spoken about submission in human institutions and submission um, in the workplace and submission in the home and now submission among one another. There's an undercurrent. There is yet another issue that Peter wants to bring up and has brought up in every instance where he's talked about submission and that's 
the reality and opportunity of presenting the claims of Jesus to a watching world. He says in verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. When Peter exhorts all of you, who do you suppose that leaves out? None of you. All of you, be of one mind. By the way, that expression, be of one mind, occurs only here in the Greek New Testament. It's an interesting word. It's homophrones. We know the word homo or homo. It means the same. Phrones is the idea of to think. Clearly, it doesn't mean that we agree or we have one mind on every little minute detail of taste or preference. No one could come to you and say, if you're a real Christian, you're going to love Italian ice cream. Spumoni is the way to go. And by the way, if you don't love Spumoni the way that I love Spumoni, you might be a phony. No, that's the very definition of legalism, isn't it? It's when my opinion becomes your obligation. This, it, this is not what Peter has in mind. He, he, it, it means that we broadly agree on essential Christianity. Be of one mind. And again, it isn't just simply one mind from a doctrinal standpoint, although clearly that's important, but it becomes one mind in the way that we actually act towards one another. The problem, of course, is that People find it difficult to even define and agree what constitutes essential Christianity. Christians debate the inspiration and authority of the Bible. They debate creation. They debate the fall of man, faith and regeneration, justification and adoption, worship and prayer, the origin and purpose of the, earth, of the church, the nature and function of church government, resurrection and judgment, the reward of the righteous, the punishment of the wicked. We have a whole lot we could fight about. The Bible says that we're to agree on the essentials. And by the way, if you can't come to grips and say, I believe that the Bible is true and it gives me an accurate representation of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that, sin, that sinners need a Savior. I believe that Jesus Christ is that Savior. I believe that if I repent of my sin and my unbelief, and I turn to him as Lord and Savior, that he'll save me. The unbeliever in the world doesn't stay up late at night wondering how you should be baptized. The unbeliever doesn't sit there and watch late night TV in the hopes of coming across a Bible teacher debating Calvinism versus Arminianism. But they do stay up late at night wondering if life matters. They wonder if there really is a God and they wonder if they can really know him. They wonder if their sins can really be heaven or be, be forgiven. They wonder if there's really a heaven. They wonder if there really is a hell. They wonder if peace is really possible. 
because they know that they don't have it in their own hearts and in their own soul. And when the emptiness and the darkness wells up inside of them and they look at your life and they look at your speech and they look at your family and they look at your circumstances, they're asking the question, can anyone, can anyone, can anyone ever know peace? And they hear the Christian claim of peace through Jesus Christ. And then they see Christians argue, they see them fight, they see them bicker, brawl, grumble, stumble, entice, complain, divide. They see the Christian husband addicted to alcohol and drugs and pornography. They read in the paper of the Christian husband beating his Christian wife and abusing his Christian children. And they say, I thought so. I was hoping it wasn't going to be true I thought so I thought so I thought that they would say that there's peace and there's joy and there's hope and there's forgiveness and there's reconciliation I thought so and I hoped so but then I see your life and I had hoped that there would be peace for my heart. And I had hoped that the claims of Jesus were, were true. But if Jesus has been such a gigantic disappointment in your family and in your heart and your life, why should I even bother? You need to understand something. The theme of submission, whether in human institutions, government, work, home, the underlying theme is to present a witness of evangelism to a watching world. And make no mistake about it, the world is watching you as a Christian. And they're considering the claims of Christ. And they're considering Christianity. And they're wondering if it's even remotely possible that it might be true. And so Peter says in essential things, we're to follow the path of conciliation. By the way, Paul agreed to submit to James in what might seem a rather narrow and arbitrary issue involving vows and blood sacrifices. For those of you who are unfamiliar, in the book of Acts chapter 21 in verses 17 through 26, there's the story of Paul, having been out preaching the gospel and reaching the lost, and when he returned to Jerusalem, he reported the work of God towards the Gentiles. And the Bible says, and when the elders heard this, they glorified the Lord, in verse 20, and immediately an accusation come up, came up. In Acts chapter 21, verse 17, it, it says, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews here who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law, but they've been informed about you. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. This is the Jerusalem church talking to Paul. Do what we tell you. If anyone ever had an opportunity to say, excuse me. Have you read my little epistle called Galatians? I'm no longer under bondage and I don't have to listen to you and I don't have to submit to you and I don't have to do what you tell me to do. 
James said, we have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written, Acts chapter 15, and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, he entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each and every one of them. In other words, here's what Paul was accused of. He was accused of being a bad Jew. And so James said, rather than lose the opportunity to witness to the Jews in Jerusalem, we want you to to act like you're a good Jew. That's what we want you to do. We want you to make good on what you yourself have written. To the Jew, I become as a Jew. To the Gentile, I become as a Gentile. Not concerning the keeping or the presence or the absence of the law, but rather of a good conscience. He basically says, I become all things to all men that I might win a few To Christ, did it help? In seven days, there was a riot. Paul goes. He does exactly what he's asked to do. There is a riot. And in in the riot, the unbelieving Jews laid the accusation. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and the place. He means the temple. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple. And he's defiled this holy place. That's what it says in Acts chapter 21, verse 28. Unbelieving Jews, not Christians, saw Trophimus, the the Ephesian, with Paul in the city. And this is what the text says. And supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple in verse 29. They seized him and they dragged him out of the temple. And the doors were shut and they tried to kill him. By the way, he submitted. He did what he was told and he did what he was supposed to do. And everyone misunderstood what he did, and they tried to kill him. Does this sound familiar to you? I tried to do what was right. It says they seized him, they dragged him, they tried to kill him. Roman soldiers bound him with chains, asked him who he was and what he did. People started screaming accusations, and the commander couldn't make heads or tails of what was going on. And so Paul asked if the commander could speak the Greek language. And the commander said, yes. And he says, I'm Paul and I'm a Jew. And he asked for permission to speak to the crowd in Hebrew. And by the way, the whole 22nd chapter of the book of Acts is devoted to the message that Paul gave that day. And he gave his testimony. He gave his testimony. He gave his testimony about what it meant to know and love and be changed from the inside out by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's submission to James in the Jerusalem church didn't begin as an opportunity to testify, but rather to calm and conciliate the congregation in Jerusalem. Paul was a Jew, and he wished to further peace. He was willing to suffer those with a weak conscience. But Paul wouldn't judge, he he wouldn't budge when it came to dealing with Peter's hypocrisy. 
When it came to the issue of essential doctrine, when it came to the issue of faith, Peter would remember that incident with a red face, knowing that in the end, Paul is willing to conciliate, but he's also not willing to compromise the truth about what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Both Peter and Paul are peacemakers and not troublemakers. By the way, how would you describe yourself? Would you say that you're more likely to stir up trouble? <laughs> Do you promote unity or demand division? And in verse 8, Peter moves from conciliation to compassion. Look what it says, having compassion for one another. By the way, the word is a familiar word even in the English language. You know it. Sympatheo. Do you hear the word? Sympathy. That's what that word actually means. In the first century, the word carried the idea of identifying with another person's predicament or suffering or injustice or deprivation. In the verb form, in the New Testament, it was used of Christ, who is our high priest in heaven, who's touched with the feeling of our infirmities, our shortcomings. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we divide the sorrow so that we can share the joy. And by the way, even in the ministry of Jesus, the apostle John records the very first miracle of turning water into wine. That's a time of joy. When a person is married, when a person gets married, there's a celebration that takes place. That's the time to celebrate. And the last miracle that takes place in John's gospel is the funeral of a friend. It's the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. John records a most joyous time. He records a sad time. When Jesus did both of those miracles, do you know what both of those miracles also had in common? Guess who was there? Peter was there. Peter witnessed Jesus turning water into wine. And, Jesus, or, and Peter witnessed Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Our hearts should be filled with compassion towards one another. We weep, the Bible says, with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. The Bible says that we're focused on the interest of others and not ourselves. In one verse, Peter moves from the thought of conciliation to the thought of compassion and then to the thought of caring. Look what it says, love as brothers. Peter clearly has family affection in mind. And some of you may not be able to relate to that phrase. Love as brothers, we fought in my home. In our house, loving as brothers meant make sure you stick, out, stick up for yourself. No, that's probably not the point. If you grew up in a household where alienation was replaced by affection, I'm sorry. But that's not the point that Peter is making. 
Clearly in the new birth by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through the new birth gives us the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and the presence of Jesus Christ in our life. And the idea is that when Jesus lives inside of you and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, there's not just the possibility, but the reality of a supernatural affection inside of your heart. That's what he's talking about. When the risen Jesus restored Peter to ministry, he said, feed my lambs and feed my sheep. But before he did that, he first asked Peter, do you love me more than these? In John chapter 21, verse 15. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter would have heard the words of Jesus ringing in his ears and in his heart. And Jesus goes through the process, not only of loving and forgiving, but restoring him. And he's saying, look, your ability to reconcile, your ability for compassion, your ability to care is going to come from my ability to impart to you exactly what you need. In order to do all that I've asked you to do. He says. Be tender hearted. By the way it translates the Greek word. You. Splonknos. I love that word. You means good. It, we get the word eulogy from that. Splonknos is a Greek word. Which means guts. Intestines. You see in the ancient world. Affection, at least according to the Greeks, was visceral. It was in your stomach. Have you ever used the expression, I hate your guts? It comes from, from this. It's the idea that the seat of emotion, was, of emotion was inside of you. And so here, when he says tender-hearted, it is actually... <laughs> a translation of the Greek word, you splonknos. It means good guts. So how are we to think about that? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it's translated tender-hearted. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. The word means to be full of pity. By the way, we live in a culture and a society that often despises pity. Maybe you yourself have said this. I don't want your pity. I don't want your pity. Everywhere you go. People will say, I don't want your pity. By the way, in the ancient world, that's exactly the way they lived. In the ancient world, pity was absence. It was conspicuous by its absence. By the way, in the ancient times, pagans had no hospitals. There were no orphanages. There were no nursing homes for the sick. There was no public education for the masses. No one provided help for the abused. No one provided help for the neglected. There weren't any rescue missions. There were no battered wives shelters. There were no social services for children who were molested or physically abused. There was no civil rights programs for slaves. There was no missions. There was no charity. Charity in those days consisted of pressing a couple of copper coins into the palms of the hand. All social service programs in Western civilization is a byproduct of Christians and Christianity. 
there's a common expression. Have a heart. That captures the idea. Jesus is described in the New Testament as going from place to place and person to person. In the New Testament, it writes, he went about doing good. Maturity includes promoting unity and interest in others and friendship and affection. So follow Peter's thought. Conciliation, compassion, caring, comforting, courteous. You should read it again. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Do you think that that means be rude in the original language? Who guesses that that's actually what it means? You would be right. It doesn't mean that at all. Be courteous translates a word philo phron. It's the idea, it literally includes two elements, once again. It's a brotherly affection coupled with thoughtfulness. That's what that word combines. It combines those two elements. We might think about it as being sensitive and thoughtful and friendly. We might think about it in terms of being the way that you treat someone. As a matter of fact, this is the word that describes exactly when Paul and the castaways were shipwrecked on the island of Malta in Acts chapter 28, verse 7. It, it says that they treated them with kindness and thoughtful consideration. They used exactly the same word. We as Christians are not given permission to be rude. We want to soften our rudeness sometimes by describing ourselves as direct. Well, you know, I'm direct, I'm blunt, I'm straightforward. You know what? It's not wrong to be direct. And it's not wrong to tell the truth. It's not wrong to be straightforward. But the Bible says, speak the truth and do it in love. The Bible doesn't give us permission to be rude. As a matter of fact, it goes on and it says in verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. I know you read that text and you go, okay, I know what you're thinking inside of your heart. You're going, okay, where do I draw the line? Where do I draw the line? I mean, at what point do you draw the line and you say this far and no further? Here's my question to you. Where did Jesus draw the line? Did he draw it before he came to Jerusalem? When he came to Jerusalem? Did he draw it when they arrested him? Did he draw it when they beat him? Did they draw it when they abused him? Did, they, did he draw the line at being placed on a cross? Did he draw the line when they suspended him between heaven and earth? Did, they draw, did he draw the line when he was mocked and ridiculed and humiliated? And again, I know what you're thinking. I'm not Jesus. Ah. There's the rub, isn't it? There's the rub. Because God's whole plan and God's whole purpose for your life is to make you like Jesus. It's to transform you from the inside out. 
Peter draws the line here. Do not retaliate. Do not return evil for evil. You and I call that payback. Hey, you know, you get what you deserve. It's payback. Now, by the way, reviling is sometimes translated railing. It's the idea of accusation against accusation or returning accusation for accusation. He's saying, look, Christians, oddly enough, aren't to do that. In other words, Christians don't seek retribution, evil for evil, reviling for reviling. And most Christians don't have a problem when it comes to the unbeliever but they think this can't, this can't apply to Christians, right? This isn't about Christian on Christian crime, is it? Uh, yeah, this is exactly what it means. Christians, oddly enough, think that they have the luxury of not applying the verse to believers, but it does apply to believers. Peter reminds the Christian that the source of the evil or the source of the reviling doesn't determine our response. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. We don't return evil for evil. We don't return accusation for accu accusation. And again, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what world is Peter living in? Peter's living in a world where a few decades earlier... He returned evil for evil. He's living in a world where the last few moments and the last few hours of Jesus' life, Jesus invited Peter to pray and he fell asleep. And when he woke up, they were surrounded by soldiers and Peter picked up a sword and he cut off the ear of Malchus, who was the, the servant of the high priest. He cut it off. And the last recorded miracle of Jesus in the Bible is him fixing Peter's mistake. Can you imagine? He picks the ear off the ground, pops it back on Malchus's head, and says, Peter, put away your sword. Jesus taught Peter that we live in a world where people are mistreated and abused and slandered, but the genuine believer lives in a world that's characterized by personal righteousness and holiness and honesty and truthfulness and behavior that isn't necessarily welcome in the fallen world. Peter isn't writing this information like some guy in a pulpit living in a, an ivory tower who's never done anything wrong. The reason why he can talk this way and the reason why he can write this way is because he used to be you. This is exactly what I used to do, Peter said. I returned evil for evil. You threaten me? You threaten my family? Then I'm going to threaten everyone in your family. You know, you talk about the law of retribution. You knock out one of my teeth, I knock out all of your teeth. You kill somebody in my family, I kill everyone in your family. But Peter is saying, guess what? You live in a different world. It's a world of righteousness and holiness and honesty and truthfulness. We are back to the issue of witness. We keep coming back to the issue of witness. Our reaction may forever close the door to minister to the gospel and the truth about Jesus and the truth about the gospel. In other words, Peter is pointing out that we could lose their friendship. 
we could lose the opportunity to witness and minister and serve. We also place in their mouths the accusation. You know what? It's a Christian who did this to me. It was a Christian who did this to me. The believer has made Jesus an unappealing savior. And if the believer returns good for evil, blessing instead of cursing, the believer opens the door for one more chance. One more chance to present Christ as savior. Peter says, bless them. The word bless means to speak well. We might even say, speak carefully. In other words, he's saying, don't react. Don't respond in kind. Don't exchange curse for curse. Don't exchange harsh word for harsh word. Don't strike back. We don't try to hurt them verbally or physically. On the contrary, we're looking for ways to commend them. Paul wrote, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. And all malice, be kind to one another. Tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. He says, build them up. Don't tear them down. Build them up instead of tearing them down. Pray for your persecutors. Jesus said, but I say to you in Matthew 5, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Some of you might be thinking, I, I can't do that. And I'm here to tell you. That if for whatever reason you can't do it, you're just simply building a case for unbelief. That Jesus doesn't really matter. That he doesn't change people's lives. That forgiveness isn't real. That a heart really hasn't changed. And look what it says in verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain the tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Do you know what he's doing? He's quoting the Psalms. Peter, the good preacher that he is, he's saying, I'd like to speak to you this morning and my message is taken from Psalm 34. That's what he's doing. He's quoting the Psalm. And you'll remember that in Psalm 34 verses 12 through 16, David wrote that Psalm. And do you remember when David wrote that psalm? It was during a time of emotional upheaval. He wasn't always a hero and he wasn't always a king. At one time, he was running for his life. Saul was seeking to kill him. He was sought day after day after day after day after day. And finally, he gave up and he ran away to Philistia. And he even went to Gath, the hometown of the giant that he slew. Now, it's one thing to run away to Gath. It's another thing to take Goliath's sword with you. Not only does he return to Gath, he has Goliath's sword. Now, do you think that these people remember what David did to their giant? If David had an opportunity to witness to the Philistines, it was pretty much over with. And so they started to threaten him. And you know what he pretended to do? 
He pretended to be insane. He acted like a whack job. He began to, to foam at the mouth and talk funny, like he didn't have both oars in the water, like his threads weren't completely all there, that he, they were stripped, actually. He drooled like a baby. He talked nonsense in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And the ruler did to him what most rulers did in the ancient world. They said, this guy's nuts. And they sent him away. And he went to the cave of Adullam in the dark limestone cave. And there he wrote those words. David was disgusted by his lapse of faith. He was disgusted by his hypocrisy. He was disgusted by his senseless and faithless attempt to find sanctuary in the country of his enemies. And David warns his men and everyone who reads the psalm to keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking guile. He's basically saying, look, I did this. I'm not proud of it. I did it. Don't you do it. Peter quotes David, and Peter wants to drive the point home. Peter's no stranger to hypocrisy and cowardice. He had lied. He had played the coward. And decades later, he was forgiven by Jesus, but the memory stung him and haunted him. The word deceit translates the word dolos, which means to bait a trap or to set a snare. And the word refrain comes from the word to stop. And so Peter uses the word in the active voice. We might even translate this, when you are tempted to open your mouth and say something cruel or unkind or wicked or wrong, bite your tongue. That's what it means. We're saintly in conduct. We're sanctified in our conversation. And look at verse 11. Let him turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Do you want the formula for surviving suffering? Do you want the formula to be able to submit and live a long and profitable life? Look what it says. Turn away from evil. Here's the idea that he's saying. Admit that you're on the wrong path and get on the right path. That's the idea. In the wicked and evil world of human beings, you stand a much better chance of surviving if you just simply do what's right instead of doing what's wrong. And so verbally, Peter is picking the person up and saying, I need you to leave this path that you're on, and I need to place you on a new path. That's what he's saying. Normally, if a person eats right and exercises and refuses to abuse their body with drugs or alcohol, if they're sexually responsible, you get to live longer. Now, is it possible that you eat right, exercise, are sexually responsible, and you die anyway. It could happen. But guess what? Are you more likely to go to jail or stay out of jail if you engage in criminal activities? What do you think the answer is? Yeah, you don't have to be a police officer. You don't even have to be an attorney to figure that one out. Bad behavior has consequences. And so... Peter encourages not only a right path, but a right perspective. He says in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The answer to pain and suffering can't be to perpetuate pain and suffering by inflicting more pain and suffering. Peter continues to quote David. 
And remember, David also is no stranger to backsliding, lapses of faith, and lapses of judgment. The reason why I'm even bringing this up is because if you are sitting there and you've had a lapse of faith and a lapse of judgment, I want you to understand something. That a lapse of faith and a lapse of judgment can be corrected. David, David, even with lapses of faith and lapses of judgment, wanted peace. Saul didn't pursue peace. Saul massacred a whole village of priests. And Saul decided that he would kill anyone, not who supported David, but who was simply an admirer of David. Even if that admirer was his own flesh and blood, Saul was willing to kill his own son simply because of his affection for and his willingness to support David. In verse 13 it says, And who is he who will harm you if you become a follower of what is good? If you've been following along in our study and you see, well, the government could hurt you if you submit. The human institutions could hurt you. Your husband could hurt you. Your wife could hurt you. The church, it could hurt you. And who is he who will harm you if you become a follower of what is good? They could all hurt you. Peter has suffered at the hands of the Jews and citizens have suffered at the hands of government and wives have suffered at the hands of their husbands and Christians have, have, have suffered sometimes at, at the hands of the church. So what if you do everything that the chapter says? Could you still get hurt? Could you still suffer? Could you still wind up on the hurt side of persecution? The answer is yes. But Peter has the long view in mind, not the short view. And who is he who will harm you if you become a follower of what is good? Well, they could harm me. But Peter understands something, that in the end there's only one person who really matters and there's only one harm that is per permanent. Remember what Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can destroy your body, but rather be afraid of that person who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Clearly there's only one person's opinion that really matters. In verse 14 he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. There are people who will read that verse and they simply won't believe it. I don't feel blessed. And don't be afraid of their threats or be troubled. But there are wives who are afraid of their husband's threats. And they are troubled. Because the person comes to them over and over and over and threatens them and threatens them and threatens them and threatens them. And pretty soon it begins to wear on your heart and wear on your soul and you become terrified. And you don't feel blessed. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you are blessed. In what way? 
because you're suffering for righteousness sake. You're suffering because of your identification with Jesus. It's because of your unwillingness to pretend that love doesn't matter and that peace doesn't matter and that forgiveness doesn't matter and that hope doesn't matter and that reconciliation doesn't matter and that heaven doesn't matter. The moment that you say, it does matter, it does matter, it does matter, and this is the way that I'm going to live, guess what? You invite persecution. Remember, James wrote, perseverance must finish its work so that you can mature and be complete. That's what Peter's doing. Peter has changed. He's grown up. And you can change. I read a note. An early church father, Augustine, wrote, Love slays what we have been, that we may be what we are not. Love kills all of the stuff inside of you that makes you not like Jesus. Someone wrote, I don't know who, Sometimes we must be hurt in order to grow. We must fail in order to know. We must lose in order to gain. Some lessons are best learned through pain. Sometimes our vision clears only after our eyes have been washed with tears. Sometimes we have to be broken so we can be tender. Sick so we can rest and think better on things more important than work or fun. Trip near death so we can assess how we've run. Sometimes we have to suffer lack so we can know God's provision. Feel another's pain so we can have a sense of mission. So take heart, my friend. If you don't understand today, instead of grumbling, ask God what he means to say. In order to learn, you must endure and learn to see the bigger picture. In order to grow, you must stand Look beyond the hurt to God's loving hand that takes what is good and gives what is best. And on this blessed thought, rest. As your anxious heart with questions wait, God's hand only gives what his loving heart dictates. He will give you what you need to grow you and to use you in the place where he's placed you. But we have to stop. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that submission often doesn't make